Nothing knows. Nothing knows. Nothing knows. Welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. Listen along as accomplished guests discuss success and failures during their journeys as entrepreneurs, business owners, and investors. Bettering your position starts by learning from those who went before you. That learning experience can happen anywhere, in the car, at the beach, or on a treadmill. There are no excuses for where you end up in life. If you want something bigger, the time to take action is now. There is no better time in history to achieve success. The hosts, Brian and Stu, are both Marine Corps veterans who believe life is what you make it. Your place in life is determined by your decisions. If you want more information on the podcast, please check out the website at nothingowed.com. No BS stands for Nothing Owed with Brian and Stu. That's what you're going to get with the show. Are you ready? All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. As always, I have my co-host here, uh, Stu Scheller. And this is uh, Brian Hanna, and we have a great guest today, Rob Kessler from Go Tylus. He has a great company. He's going to explain everything he's, do- everything he's doing and how he got started. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you. Rob, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell everybody a little bit about you and uh, your company. Hey guys, how are you doing? My name is uh, Rob Kessler. I'm the inventor of Million Dollar Collar. So the simplest uh, explanation is think of a collar stay, except nine inches long, and it goes down where the buttons and the holes are, but it's... A thin, very flexible, but rigid uh, material. It's not plastic. Plastic cannot handle the heat of dry cleaning. So it's about nine inches long. It goes on the button and buttonhole side of the front of a dress shirt. Uh, It gives reinforcement to that front so that the shirt doesn't collapse under the weight of the collar. Dress shirts were never designed to be worn without a tie, which is why there's no structure in the front of it. And I don't care how much you starch, or what kind of interfacings or fusings you put in a dress shirt after a few washes and a few wears and or a little bit of humidity, it's going to collapse. And it drove me insane. Um, If you see my wedding photo that's on our website in our about section, you'll see that is a brand new freshly pressed shirt less than 30 minutes after I put it on before I could even say I do and I look like a complete slob. Uh, I just hate the way that that looks. So when I put on a dress shirt, I want to look good and there was nothing that made it look good. So I made it. Yeah, this is a little bit harder with a podcast without the visual, but when you see it, it just makes sense. I'm sitting here looking at it on our Zoom call, and I can see why this would be something that everybody would need in a dress shirt. It really does make the dress shirt look good, but I get it. You're at Jamaica, at your wedding, in your words, feeling like a slob. So, boom, the idea hits you when you see the wedding pictures. What do you do then? So, I came home and Googled uh you know, how to fix that area. And everybody talks about starch and collar stays and there was nothing else that I thought fixed the problem. So I got to work on that. At the time that uh, was all happening, I owned a screen printing and embroidery business called Nude, N-E-W-D, which stood for nothing else will do. So, you know, if you're ever looking for uh, your mission statement, mine was built right into my name. So we, we delivered uh, really high quality, never missed a deadline. You know, if you've ever had to have screen printed t-shirts, you know that there's a million excuses why stuff doesn't get done, but we never miss a deadline in nine years. I did that. I did, uh, I've sold houses, cars, and diamonds on top of that and uh, did some real estate investing. So I've been uh, kind of all over the board. 
now that people see you as a successful entrepreneur and you're out in LA with a bunch of successful people, has the million dollar collar opened the door to pitches to other ideas? And if so, how have you been able to, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing and stay focused on million dollar collar? Because once people taste that success, often there's a lot of other things pushed at you. We're growing, but I, to me, we're not anywhere close to done. So it's all about growing Million Dollar Collar and growing GoTileless, which is our new thing. I think they're two separate companies, but they're very parallel. Um, a lot of the same customers uh, on both companies. And so we're really focused on this. Uh, on the side, as a side project, I am a 50-ton master captain. So my wife and I have a 50-foot uh, a yacht that we do charters on. We now do that only on the weekend, mostly on the weekends. And we're like, well, we can meet more people with this way and we can use the boat to like further our relationships with the people that we're meeting. And so now you look back two years later and the businesses, the charter businesses like off the chains because everybody wants to get out of the house and go do something in the sun. We're booked six, seven weeks in advance. Now our weekends are like full. We've had Beyonce on our boat. We've had Pauly Shore shot the final scene of his new movie on our boat. We had Forrest Whitaker's daughter out for her 21st birthday. We've had NFL players and NHL players. And like, it's been insane. Huge producers, huge directors. Like, it's nuts, dude. I mean, it just, to me, you just keep collecting opportunities and things are going to happen for you eventually. Why aren't you out on the boat right now? It's Sunday. We're recording this on a Sunday. Why aren't you on the yacht, man? I blocked off the schedule for you guys. Oh, wow, man. Um, we're I'm going telling you later. what. We have, we have a Beyonce is not on your yacht because you're talking to me, dude. I feel I feel like a big deal right now. Yeah, I know. It's so awesome when people come in. We're like, that's the Beyonce seat. And they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I feel guilty now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rob. <laughs> no, no. You know what? My passion is Million Dollar Collar and Go Tylus and making a, the thing that I created, I monster success where'd you get your start what was the first thing you started with uh so i to to get my driver's license i had to pay for the insurance on the car which was like 50 bucks a month or something so um i ended up starting at uh if anybody's familiar with milwaukee wisconsin they have Summerfest, the world's largest music festival and uh i was serving pizza slices of pizza at uh, at Summerfest all summer long so okay. that was my very first job uh, after that, I ended up getting into a soccer and volleyball store. I played uh, pretty competitive soccer. So I worked at the soccer store, met a bunch of guys that were older than me. The owner of the business gave me keys and a code to the alarm system day one. He put 100% faith in me. Um, and within a few months, I was kind of working in the, I was starting to do a little bit of the accounting stuff. We would go up at night and like tear the whole store apart, repaint it, reorganize it. And I did that through high school and college for a couple of years. Uh, and it was just the most in freeing, incredible experience. This guy just let us really follow where we wanted to be. And very early on, 17, 18 years old, I was developing kind of what my, I thought I would, uh, I was like having my own business without all the stress. Rob, I actually, it's funny you say that, brother. I actually worked at a place called Soccer Village when I was in high school and I played high school and college soccer and very similar experiences. So that's pretty interesting to hear you say that. And my question is, and I, I was doing some research on you before, a lot of interesting stuff. And I was, one of the questions I had was timeline. Can you talk to me when the wedding was in Jamaica? So for our listeners, the year's 2020. How long has this been in the making? specifically with the venture that you got going on right now? 
Uh, I got married uh, in February of 2013. It, we were there for a week, obviously. We came home and I started just digging around. I actually had gotten like a cup from the Hard Rock Cafe and it was in this really thin, like recycled cardboard. I'm like, ah, oh, this is, this is going to work. So I cut open a dress shirt. I slid it down the front. I showed my new bride and she's like, oh my God, I get what you've been complaining about all these years. Cause you know, uh, to me, a dress shirt is like the most versatile thing a guy can wear. Wear it untucked, roll up the sleeves, wear it buttoned up and with a tie, wear it unbuttoned without a tie. And so to me, that's the thing I would always go to. If we're going to go out and hang out with friends, go to the bar or the club or whatever, I'd wear a dress shirt. And when one side would hang down and the other side wasn't, I'm a little bit OCD and that I just wanted that symmetry. And so I'd be there still ironing my shirt while my wife is already ready to go. Like, dude, what are you doing? Let's get out of here. And I'm still like trying to make sure that the shirt looked right. And so when it all kind of collapsed on my wedding day, I was like, that's it, that's enough. And so I came home, I cut open that shirt, I shoved a piece of cardboard down the front and that was kind of the birth of it. She just instantly, it's one of those products that once you see it, you're like, oh my God, that's that. You're, I get what you're saying instantly. So uh, that was February of 2013. It's, you know, it was about a month or so after the wedding. I started futzing around with it and I got into it that summer. We committed to doing like a $2,000 patent search to see if there was anything else out there because I hadn't found anything. So now when you say was, we, uh, when you say we, who is that? Because right now the story is, you know, you had this problem at your wedding. You started prototyping with cardboard, which is really exciting to hear. But who did you start bringing in from this idea and its inception other than your wife? It was really her from the beginning. Um, she was very, very supportive from day one. Beyond the cardboard, I would cut open mini blinds and milk cartons. And I had like a flexible cutting board. I mean, I was trying everything around the house. Uh, but she was insanely supportive. And, and the point in that really is, is if you want to get a patent, just be ready to start cutting thousand plus dollar checks because and it's never ending. It's seven years later and I'm still cutting thousand dollar checks. So it's, uh, it's crazy. Expensive. Did you go straight for the utility or did you go provisional? Did the provisional for sure. I would highly recommend that. Um, why? Can you talk about why? Well, it gives there, there's, you talked about time frame and, and with the patent process, there's a lot of deadlines. And so to, I would maximize your R and D time. I would maximize your putting it to the market time. So you get a year on the provisional patent. And then once it goes provisional um, and you file for the actual patent, you could go back and forth for five years in that process of trying to get the patent because what your attorney will do if he's a good attorney is write the patent as broad as possible. The patent office will say no, and then he'll write it a little bit less broad and then a little less broad and a little less broad until they finally say yes. And that process takes time. You either pay expedited, which we did, was to get a response within six weeks or you get a response within six months. And so you can really rack up the years, but all that time you're protected with the provisional and the patent pending. I mean, if you looked at Silk Milk a few years ago, it still said patent pending and it was a billion dollar company. You don't have to go all the way to the patent. And then the other route would be to file the provisional patent and then just go start finding people to license it and never even put a dollar into trying to sell it and market it. And I mean, look, we're seven years later and it's, it's a bear, it's, it's tough, but. I know it'll be worth it. So depends on, you know, if you're ready to wrap your life up in this thing, or if you, you know, just have a great idea and you want to license it out to somebody to get some mailbox money. Yeah, that was so provisional to me screams, I want to license it. In my opinion, when you go to file the provisional, if this is, if you're an entrepreneur, like you obviously are, and this is a great product, million dollar caller, like you have, and you're saying, Hey, 
the only reason in my mind why you would do the provisional is if you're thinking, hey, I don't know if I can bring this to market. The provisional is cheaper. And like you said, it gives me a year R&D to figure out if I really want to fully commit to this. But I would submit to you for the utility, if you just file the utility, it's going to go through the same patent pending where you can have the same protection as it's going through all those administrative hurdles where you don't actually need the extra year of the provisional, but the provisional is a little bit cheaper, just buys you a little bit more time. And, and we just haven't had a chance to talk about this on the show. So that's why I'm, I'm hitting you with all questions on this. But I, I think it's really interesting because most people, when they, everyone has a great idea at one point, like million dollar caller, great idea. But the problem is most people just go on living their lives and the prototyping and the patent process are the two hurdles that in my opinion, prevent everyone from getting into this is the great idea and I'm going to bring it to market. And I think it's worth just kind of stopping for a second to discuss. Yeah. I mean, I spent three years in R and D. Um, I ruined a hundred dress shirts trying to figure this thing out. I ordered every plastic that was on the market that claimed to be high heat resistant. I'd wash it, dry it, iron, whatever I was testing, it would work fine. And then I would send it to the dry cleaner. And I finally asked them like, man, what kind of temperature do you guys use? And it's over 400 degrees when they flash press a shirt. So I ended up partnering with an international plastics company, helped develop this material that can handle double the heat, almost double the heat that dry cleaners use. Cause I knew, I, I learned a couple things early on for me. One, dress shirts always, always, always have two layers where the buttons and the holes are because it's a tugging point and they need to be stronger than just one layer of fabric. So my product hides in between those layers uh, and needs to be sewn into the shirt. So it's really easy to do for anybody who knows how to sew. But that was just some of the things I learned about that process. And, and, and it does take time. So while I'm trying to figure it out, we were filing the patent and doing all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, the provisional, it's definitely a, a more budgetary conscious thing. I mean, I think you can file a provisional for under a thousand bucks if you know what you're doing. But I knew that I was going to commit my life to this company because I knew it was such a great idea. Such a great idea that my dad, who we've had our ups and downs, came to me one day and said, uh, I want to invest in this. This is a great idea. And so he was uh, the first partner I had, gave me a little bit of funding money. Um, and so, and everybody I talked to just was like, this is a great idea. So I ended up selling that screen printing business. My wife and I sold everything we had. We moved to Los Angeles uh, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin on the 10 day cross country tour to get out here. Uh, the patent attorney called and said, your patent was approved. So it was pretty uh, amazing timing for that. But yeah, the patent process is brutal. And that's why, you know, I found a new book. My wife found a book uh, about, you know, taking your idea, get it provisionally protected, and then going out trying to license it. You know, it's a lot less potential income, but it's a lot less stress. It's a lot less investment. It's a lot less uh, commitment on time and everything else. So it just depends on where you're at in life, you know, what you're up to. That's interesting. Do you mind explaining when you apply for your, your patents, how in depth do they have to go? Like, did you have to submit the type of material or does the patent just cover the general, the concept of the million dollar collar? I covered, to, to keep it as broad as possible, like I was saying before, it is a stiffener that isn't normally found in a shirt and there's specifics about how it goes into the shirt, where it's in the shirt. Okay. That's what my patent covers. So I didn't want to get too deep into materials because every time you, when you get too specific, then it's easy to kind of get around it for another company or whatever. So okay. uh, as general as you can possibly be, the better off you're going to be. So but it, the patent office wants it very, very specific. So, okay. you know, every time my patent attorney was like $600 an hour. So, I mean, if you would read back a rejection letter, it's like, it took them 30 minutes to read. It's like, <laughs> dude, I just paid $300 to read something. It's, so, so I'm telling you, 
and again, I, I knew I was committing my life to this product. So I wanted to find the best patent attorney I could, which comes at a serious cost, but it's like, I, I'm putting all my cards in this basket. So I want to make sure that I'm protected later on when the ad, you know, when the product starts getting ripped off and, and people start trying to go around me. So I think it'll be worth it in the end. What I didn't know in this process is the patent itself becomes a revenue stream. If your idea is good enough and people want to knock it off, suing people for patent infringement is an entire new revenue stream for your company that most people don't understand that that's a thing. I didn't you, understand. Have you done thing. that yet? Have you been in any lawsuits? Um, one guy came out and very early on and said that we were infringing, even though we were accepted um, at the, we were still patent pending. So we were kind of attacked and that goes to show his attorney wrote the patent so poorly that it didn't come up on a patent search for what we were trying to do. Uh, whether he did it or he had an attorney do it, uh, you know, we paid $2,000 to have, you know, when the attorneys go and dig and do a patent search, they find everything. This guy's thing didn't even come up. And oddly, he lived about 45 minutes away from me. Uh, and I was friends with his brother. So it was like the most random weird thing, but never met the guy, never anything. He's tried to threaten us. Uh, we got him shut down pretty quick, but it cost me probably 1500 or 2000 bucks to shut him up and tell him to stop, you know, harassing us right now. We have one of the biggest brands on the planet is, or licensees on the planet is very, they're on the edge of infringing. So we're slowly looking at that process. So we'll see what that's about, but not, we haven't had to use it yet. Now do you sell on Amazon? And I ask that just because Amazon has almost its own ability to protect things that are trademarked and patented. So I'm wondering if you sell Million Dollar Caller on Amazon. We do. Um, we got on very early. Uh, the cool thing, at least when we got on back in 2016, probably, they help elevate new brands. And so our sales shot up really quick. The first warning I give now to everybody is if somebody comes and says that they can make your business better, I doubt it. <laughs> everybody that's tried to plug and play our product with what they've done in the past has failed miserably. Uh, we were doing a significant amount of business on Amazon without really trying. We weren't paying for ads. We weren't doing anything. Got this, brought this guy in. He was like two grand or something like that. And our t sales tanked in half. He changed up a bunch of stuff, started running ads, and it was just a disaster. And that was the beginning of learning that people from the outside of the company just don't know what you know and how to talk the way you talk. I think our product's a little different, but yeah, we are on Amazon. We have the whole protection program thing. They want this transparency thing now that charges, you know, more for a label and all this stuff. And it's like, they already take, I don't know, 25 or 27% or something. So yep. um, we don't do the transparency thing, but we're on um, us, Canada, all of Europe, uh, Japan, Singapore, Australia. So we're in most of the Amazons. That's great. Can you talk a little, I'm curious, the guy that you hired to promote your, promote your product on Amazon, what was he offering? Just so someone can be aware of that. What was his pitch? What did he promise he could do for you? It was several years ago now. It was just about increasing our sales. I mean, we okay. were doing probably ten or eleven or twelve thousand dollars a month, and on Amazon, lit like I said, without trying. We had the product in. I was, you know, it was in FBA, so I just shipped once a month to make sure they stayed stock. And he's like, "Oh, I, you know, if we run at," and I knew I met him through somebody who I met through somebody else. And hey, Rob, you can know, you can you quickly clarify FBA? I, I understand what that is, but so, I don't think a lot of people do. Uh, fulfillment by Amazon. So, you know, that's where you ship everything to Amazon and they ship it out of their distribution centers as opposed to merchant fulfilled where I would hold the stock, I would sell it on Amazon, I would hold the inventory. And then when somebody ordered, I would, you know, ship it to them. And 
when you start doing it, you know, our product started at $9.99. Now we're at $14. So we started at a three pack for $9.99. Now we're $14 for a five pack. When you start taking in the credit card processing fee at 70 to 90 cents and then shipping for, and everybody wants tracking on shipping. So the minimum you're paying is $3 for shipping. All of a sudden you start adding up these fees versus what FBA costs. I can ship hundreds of units of my product to Amazon for like five or $6. And then they handle everything else, the shipping, the returns, the credit card fees. And then every two weeks I get a check uh, deposited in my account for the sales. So yeah, we were, we were doing pretty well on there. He came in and said he could, you know, I'm like, Oh, if I can get here, this guy knows what he's doing. If he can double that, like we're cranking 20, 30,000 a month would be amazing. It cost us probably 2,500 or 3000 bucks between him and the ads. And our sales went down to like five, $6,000 a month. And I don't know what the hell he changed but it took years to try to get back to that momentum that we had. Uh, it was brutal. And he was like the first of half a dozen people that did that to us. So, Rob, can you talk about, as I was researching you, I think the thing that was most interesting that jumped out to me was you make this great product, but the rub is that somebody has to go to a dry cleaner to get it inserted. And I know you played with, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, can I get a shirt producer to just insert it in the shirt? And so can you talk about that evolution, that process where you were thinking about, should I just sell the shirt with the million dollar collar in it? Or is this something that they should buy additionally and that kind of evolution going through that? Yeah. So very early on, we, we actually did a Kickstarter to make our own shirt. It was in 2015, before we had the patent, before we had everything finalized, we were going to do our own shirt. We were trying to raise $40,000 to do two colors. And unequivocally, we didn't get funded. We got 18,000 of that. Um, but unequivocally, the feedback was, why are you trying to compete with all the other brands out there? Why not license the technology? And why can't I upgrade the shirts I already own? And so we sat back and thought, well, God, I mean, you know what dress shirt fits. You know what you like. Why are we trying to compete with the millions of brands that are out there? And that made total sense. So we went back and adjusted. So the design originally was going to be our own shirt. And we said, well, let's make a universal one. Um, by this time, I had another business partner, Steve, uh, who I still have. We went back and uh, I edited the design to be a universal fitting piece that goes into any dress shirt. So, and the beauty of that ends up being that we have, you know, I can fit $20,000 worth of inventory in a shoebox, whereas dress shirts take up a ton of space. So yeah, that's, that's, we were going to do our own shirt. We went, as soon as we got the patent, I got here into California in late October, 2015. In January, February of 2016, my partner had already signed us up and gotten us meetings with some of the biggest brands in New York. So we went and did a tour of six or seven brands and talked to those guys before we had a sale, before we had anything to even prove that we had a great product. And so we went after that licensing thing. We've been trying it for years. And now four years later, nobody has picked up on the licensing because they've come up with every excuse on the planet. Uh, we just said, screw it. Let's make our own shirt because people are begging for this thing. So we started launching our own shirt a few months ago. Uh, we started the process a year ago. We started selling about a few months ago and we've been completely mostly sold out to the point we had to turn our ads off and we can't get new product because of COVID. But as you were asking the rub of this million dollar collar being a universal, having to be sewn in after the fact, that's been a challenge. You know, usually you can find a mentor that's done something before that you can follow that path. But I literally have one of the only products on the planet that you buy one place and you have to take somewhere else just to use. And so started thinking about that and said, well, where do people who care about the way they look go with dress shirts? Um, so we started going to dry cleaning trade shows. 
uh, started talking to dry cleaners. We're in about 650 dry cleaners around the country right now. You know, the guy that's already used to that process to drop off his shirts, that cares enough about the way he looks, that he pays somebody else to press and clean his clothes. We focus on that. That's our main distributor channel right now. Who do you sell the shirts through? Is that just your website? So we had another company in like October that was supposed to launch us into Christmas. We spent over $30,000 with these guys and they sold six shirts before Christmas. <laughs> six. Less than, yeah, six, not 60, one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, so we ended up getting rid of those guys uh, and kind of reconvened and got a new guy and started in February. And we sold out of 75% of our inventory during COVID. And so now we're sitting right here waiting for some inventory to come in. We just got this shirt back in. We got it in as of tomorrow, we got it in. So I'll have more white shirts back on, on, on the website soon. But yeah, it's been, uh, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, your job is to solve problems and there's always going to be problems. And if you focus on the problem, that's, you're going to drown. But if you focus on the solution, you know, okay, this thing needs to be sewn in. What's the solution? Okay. The, we don't have shirts. What's the solution? And we just keep trying to push forward and find solutions to problems. It seems like the selling the shirt is almost a separate endeavor. When you were just selling the million dollar collar insert, did you have to try and make strategic partnerships with dry cleaners? I mean, that, I would think if for the business model of just selling them, reaching out to the dry cleaners would be the likely thing that you would need to do. Yeah, so we, we do have partnerships with those guys. We learned really quick that they aren't salespeople. You know, if you've ever been to a dry cleaner, you go in, the girl at the front's like, okay, how many shirts do you have? Any stains? See you in three days you know, they're order takers, they're not sellers. So we ended up developing all of the materials. If you see all the shelving in my background, that's all dry cleaner marketing materials. So what we found with our thing, and even with my friends, I've had to like steal shirts out of their closet to insert this in. And once it's in your shirt, you are hooked and you will never wear a dress shirt without million dollar collar. So our main marketing with the dry cleaners is look, offer the first shirt free to your customer and get them hooked. A guy will come back with 10, 20, I mean, the typical dry cleaning customer has like 23 or 24 shirts in their closet. So think about that guy comes back, you give them one for free and they bring back 20 more shirts and pay for them. That's our, our pitch with the dry cleaners. We've been to half a dozen dry cleaning shows in the last couple of years. And so we talked to those guys. And like I said, we're in about 650 of them. We work with the biggest marketing company for dry cleaners. That's a crazy story too. Yeah, that's where we're at with those guys. So I'm curious, how, since it is a crazy story, how did you get hooked up with the, uh, the marketing company for dry cleaners? <laughs> so I'm in LA, like uh, my wife uh, had come out to LA a few times and she's a fitness model uh, and she did the show Icon and meets this guy, Chris. Uh, we got to LA and so we had lunch with Chris and we're just like, we don't know anybody here. And so he's like, oh, my mentor is been in dry cleaning for 35 years. He knows everybody. You should meet him. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So uh, I go and meet him and he's like, oh, there's this show in Long Beach in a couple of weeks. I'll go with you and I'll introduce you to some people. And dude, this guy walks in and everyone is like, Barry, hey, Barry, what's up, Barry? Everybody knows this guy. So I'm walking through the show and they're, it's kind of at the end on the second day and they're, people are starting to bundle stuff up. And all of a sudden I hear Rob. And I was like, did someone just say my name? I turn around and it's a guy from Milwaukee that I knew when he was at this little magazine called 4PM Magazine that I gave a bunch of my nude stuff to. We start talking and he's like, yeah, I own this company and we do you know, marketing for dry cleaners. So I'm walking through a show in Long Beach after I've been, and I literally was cleaning up my Facebook a few months earlier and saw his name and just was like, I haven't talked to this guy in four years. And then like two months later, I ran into him at a dry cleaning trade show and he owns the biggest dry cleaning marketing company that there is. 
And so we wouldn't <laughs> work. Sometimes things are just meant to be. So uh, me being in dry cleaners and running into this guy and getting our patent on the way out to LA. And I mean, it's just it's the, the universe works in a funny way. Absolutely. That's hilarious. I, up until this point, I had no idea there actually was a dry cleaning marketing. Would have never guessed that even existed, but that's awesome. Well, <laughs> so guess how many dry cleaners before COVID there were in the U.S. alone? 10,000. 10? It's yeah. got to be 30 or 40, I'll bet. I'll bet. 40,000 dry yeah. cleaners and 100,000 tailors. So, you know, there's the, you know, the family that owns one shop and then there's the guys that own 50, 80, 100 shops. And so, you know, the guys that are at the dry cleaning trade shows to me are the ones that are spending to grow their business. I mean, these people will spend $250,000 on a dryer to save, you know, 14 cents an hour uh, on just trying to be more efficient. So when we're offering a product with a a good margin and on dress shirts, they don't make very much money because it's so labor intensive. So we've got this great thing and it's like starting to funnel in and people are starting to figure it out. So that's incredible. Now, just off topic a little bit, you said there were a hundred thousand tailors. Is, did I hear that yeah. right? Yeah. Wow. And so the, the crazy thing is, is we we've had sales in like 117 countries. Okay. And in, in, in Europe and in, you know, Southeast Asia, like Singapore, we sell a ton in Malaysia, you know, tailoring your clothes is such a normal thing. And in the U S people like I'm buying it, it either fits or it doesn't. I'm not screwing around with it. So we've got the added challenge of most people just don't do tailoring and it's so readily available. I mean, there's two and a half times more tailors than there are dry cleaners. If you Google right now, alterations near me, you'd be like, I didn't even know these places existed and they're, they're everywhere. And so it, that's another challenge is that people just don't tailor stuff, even though it's a really easy process and it'll make you look five times better because things just fit right where they're supposed to. And it's really Rob, not while we're, expensive. Yeah. While we're talking about numbers of uh, dry cleaners, tailors, I'm curious, how many shirt manufacturers are there? Are there that many or is it just a, you know, an oligarchy, a few control the many? So there's two main manufacturers that make most of the shirts. One in six shirts was made by one company that came to the U.S. 180 million shirts uh, in 2018 or 2019 were made by one factory just to the U.S. So, and then there's a second company. I'm not sure how big they are, but we're talking to number one and number two because we would talk to a brand and they'd be like, oh, we have to talk to our manufacturer to see if they can do this. And I know when I was designing this that the way dress shirts are made, since we were going to make our own dress shirt, I understand how the construction happens. Adding my product into the process is almost not even an extra step. So when they're sewing the body of the shirt to the collar band, they slide mine in, sew it right through and just keep going and nothing really has to change. Um, So we're now talking to the two biggest manufacturers to try to get them to sell it. So we talked to them earlier and they're like, well, we're not salespeople. We just take orders. But then they also develop new products and materials and fabrics and processes. So we just keep getting pushed around. And I think until people realize that we've made an impact in the market, uh, they haven't taken us too seriously. So honestly, my uh, goal with Go Tylus, making our own dress shirt, was to get big enough to go to these two big manufacturers and say, look, we've built a brand around this technology. I want you to make our shirts. Then they really have to take us seriously. So when it comes to finding ways to make things happen, that is my mind works in a totally crazy way. Even my dad is like, dude, who are you? <laughs> and he built a massive company. <laughs> Can you talk about uh, 
speaking of massive companies, employees that you have and how it's grown from 2012 to where you're at now? So we had a good run going for a while and then we've gotten derailed on some outside people. Uh, so it's still really just my partner, Steve and I handling the two things, the two companies. My dad is now retired from his company. So he, you know, inputs a little bit here and there, but it's really Steve and I that do the daily grind. Um, and it's just kind of lining stuff up right now. So we're anticipating and ready to hire out some of those positions, but he's in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm in Los Angeles. So we're still trying to figure out like remote working separate in two different States and how do we do that? Do we hire somebody? We had a guy working for us that was from LA and then he moved to Denver. And then it was like, all of a sudden we couldn't keep track of what he was doing and sales started slipping. And then it was like, well, dude, what are you doing? And so we haven't figured out all of that quite yet. And we're still at a level where it's manageable enough for both of us. So I'm just trying to stack as much cash as we can so that when we do hire somebody, we can pay for somebody that's really good and just say, we're going to get someone great in here and not a half price part-time and only get a little bit out of them. I want, I want somebody who's passionate about this and it's that I can rely on and I can count on as we grow. I'm amazed that it's still just you and your partner. I, I know some of the numbers. Can you just talk to the audience about volume that you're selling for million dollar caller in an annual year when it's still just you and your partner? Yeah. So we've sold so we started in January of 2016. We're four and a half years in. We sold almost 300,000 sets uh, worldwide. Most of probably 60 or 70% of our sales are through Amazon. So it's literally just boxing stuff up and shipping it off to them. My mom actually handles that for us. So I guess we do have an employee. I pay for her cell phone. So <laughs> she's pretty reasonable. You priced. Um, but so she does our domestic orders from our website and then she just packs up. She's retired too. I mean, she's 70 and it just gives us a reason to be able to talk daily. She used to work for me when I had my screen printing business in Milwaukee. So I got to see her every single day, which was amazing. And so she handles kind of that, but having Amazon is like having a whole other employee. And to that point, we spend, man, 12 or $1,500 a month on our website with all the automations and all the follow-up and all the processes that are built in. To me, that's like having a really inexpensive employee is having a really dialed in website. And it's like, oh, we want to add a new app to the website and it's another 50 bucks a month. And it's like, do you, can you justify that? And it's like, yeah, you sell a few products and it's one less thing that we have to do. I mean, everything kind of just happens and then the orders go out. So we try to keep the team as lean as possible so that we can you know, have money when we need to make a move. That's great. What have you found on the website has been working the best for you? What, what have you added that's giving you the best return? So we're on Shopify. When I started, we had a $9.99 three pack, like I had mentioned. We moved that to a $14 five pack and our average sales were like maybe $17. And then I added an app from Bold called Upsell, uh, product Upsell. And it would just say, hey, if you, you like your five pack, you might like, I'll give you five extra for 35% off. And our average sale went from almost overnight, went from $17 to like $29. And so now all of a sudden you're moving a $30 product and it's still $3 shipping. It's, you know, the uh, processing fee doesn't go up that much. And it was like, it changed things really quickly to get that extra sale. And then we added in metal collar stays with our branded metal collar stays. And that's another upsell. And so it just moved our product, our ticket price up really quickly. That's great. And that occurs just before checkout or when exactly in the process does that happen? So you could set it to two different points. You can set it once it adds to cart. So when, if you order a 10 pack on our site and instantly it'll say, Hey, 
you want to get 10 more for 35% off and a good portion of people do. We very rarely have a sale of just one item anymore. Okay. Um, and then when they go to checkout, it says, you know what, we've got these metal collar stays in there, 50% off. If you want to grab a set of metal collar stays, they're awesome. They go with it really well. Uh, and a lot of people grab that too. So okay. it's in two different points. We try not to overwhelm people. Um, and then you can set it by product. So what we've recently done is open an account with PVH, which is Phillips Van Hughes in the one of the largest licensees of dress shirts. So we have Calvin Klein, Kenneth Cole, Tommy Hilfiger, a bunch of brands of shirts that we buy, upgrade them with million dollar collar and then sell them. So now you can go uh, as trying to find another way, an easier way. You know, if you know that brand, you know what size you are, you can just order a shirt that's already got million dollar collar in if you don't want to screw around with going to the dry cleaner. They buy that and it says, hey, you know what? You got this. I know you're going to love it in your other shirts. Grab a five pack for, you know, 20% off or 30% off or whatever. So it's just playing with how the different upsells work. That's, that's awesome. It's so, it's so simple, but it seems like it's such a great return. I mean, that's, that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just wrote it down. I'm going to do that, Rob. I've got a Shopify website and I don't do that. Uh, and I'm going to add it to my website here shortly. Yeah. I mean, be careful with bold. They are the biggest app company, but even their own apps don't talk together. So when we, we had million dollar collar running for probably three and a half or four years. And then we're like, well, we're going to just start go tireless on Shopify. We already know how everything's supposed to work. We need this app and this app and this app. And the day we were going to launch, they still, their things weren't working together. And it's a really weird company. They've got great ideas, but the execution's a little rough. So be careful with bundling too many of their apps together. Um, but the upsell is pretty awesome. Uh, they really mess with the code in Shopify. That's what the problem is. Have you, are there any alternatives that you've considered that do similar things, but maybe function a little better? I leave that to my partner. He's the okay. technology guy. Uh, Fair enough. I am, he, I, I'm like adding extra work to him whenever he asks me to do something on the computer. Like, I can't find it. I don't know where this is. I can't find that. He just handles that stuff. So, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> know okay. your role. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Now, can you talk about advertising? So what's your guys's advertise? It seems like this is one of those great products that everyone needs to know about. So what was the strategy you took to get in front of eyeballs and still do today? Early on, for whatever reason, I had, apparently hadn't watched enough Shark Tank and listened to Mark Cuban enough, but I thought that we had to have a PR company. I'm like, I'm in LA. We have to have a PR company. And so we ended up meeting some two girls that were starting their company. So I thought, oh, we can leverage this. We're going to be this great story for them. Two and a half months into our three-month contract, they hadn't even written the press release, the PR. So we fired them, hired another company for like $25,000 or $4,000 a month. They didn't get us one article in six months. And so we found out that PR was just not the route for us. When we launched, we ended up hooking up with a bunch of up and coming fashion influencers. And so got on YouTube quickly. We were getting, you know, tons and tons of views and it was coming from a trusted name. And that seemed to be a good source for us. The fact is my product is very visual. I mean, my dad dominates the radio in Wisconsin. He, run, he used to run, I don't know, 2,500 ads a week for his company. So everybody knows our name in Wisconsin. I had to think about describing this product, you know, audibly when it's such a visual thing. My, I mean, my business card is literally a before and after and everybody I show this to is like, yep, I need that. I know what it is exactly instantly. So it's such a visual thing that influencer route just worked really well for us. And then we followed it up with Facebook ads. And again, we'd hire a Facebook company and it was like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. And then they would use the wrong terminology. They were 
placing these crazy broad ads, getting us 10,000 likes from Bangladesh that it, it was just, it's a mess. So our new Facebook guy is doing a really great job. He's uh, a friend of my partners and he, I think he's passionate about making it work for us. He's gotten our go tile sales really well. Um, but it's just a lot of testing. I mean, I would think about, there's an ad that we did of my wife in like kind of morning after, and the title was finally something that'll stay up all night. <laughs> and so there's, you know, she's kind of in a bra and like, a, you know, she's got the guy's dress shirt on the next morning. And, you know, we started running that to like guys that like Howard Stern, you know, maybe, you know, dress shirts and fashion and stuff and trying to like link those together and try to figure out that stuff. So I would just play around with that kind of stuff. You piqued my curiosity. What what does your dad do back in Wisconsin? So my dad is was the uh, third largest independent jeweler in the country. He grew from absolutely nothing to seven locations. One of the the one of the if not the most respected name in diamonds in the country. So the entrepreneurship ran ran through your blood. Yeah, um, my aunts, two of my aunts had a really uh, successful salon. My grandma built a really big bridal shop. She, she sewed up two dresses, sold those, made four dresses, sold those, and then started a bridal. I mean, it's my uncle's a big real estate guy in Detroit. So yeah, it's, it's really been around our family quite a bit. So I've seen the struggles. I mean, I growing up my you know early years, I ate a lot of beanies and weenies, we'd call it. So it's just beans and hot dogs and a casserole dish. Yeah, so I've seen it, you know, and I've lived it and um, I can see the lows and I've, I've seen the highs. So what degree did you get just out of curiosity or did you? I got a marketing degree. I actually was still working. So by my through my sophomore year, I was still working at that soccer and volleyball store. I'm 20 years old, making $14,000 a year thinking that I am God's gift and that I am just like cruising through life. So I scaled my schooling back to whatever the minimum 12 or 13 credits a semester. Um, and I almost dropped out after two years. And the guy that hired me at the screen at the soccer shop ended up leaving his partner. Uh, my dad was consulting him a little bit. And after a week of being off, he actually walked into my dad's office and said, I'm coming to work for you. And my dad was like, well, what are you going to do? He goes, I don't care. I don't care what you do. You don't even have to pay me right now, but I'm coming to work for you. You changed my life. And so he started working for my dad and I ended up going to work for my dad. I finished up my junior and senior year. I caught up on my credits. I did summer schools. They had a winter in back then in between the winter and spring semester. I did that. Uh, graduated in four years with a full-time job my junior and senior year working for my dad. Did something change? Like what was the light switch that got flipped? Um, when I went to work for my dad and I started making like 25 or 30,000 while I was in, still in college. I'm like 14 isn't shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like I thought this soccer thing, I'm like, I was having fun. It was a lot of cool guys. And you know, the partnership that company wasn't growing because one of the partners just didn't really care that much. And the guy that I admired and my mentor left and it, that had kind of thrown everything to the side. And I ended up being the first person in my family to ever graduate full college so it was great you know four years even while working full-time and catching up from old classes I just you know hunkered down and did it so why why move to LA just out of curiosity did you do it for the company because it seems like you could probably manage this from anywhere what brought you to LA so uh, my wife and I had come out here quite a bit uh, my dad has a house in Palm Springs at PGA West so we would come and visit him or we would just go out to LA. I had a few friends out here. We just would come home every time and be like, God, we just met incredible people this weekend. We met incredible people. 
so after doing that for a few years, we finally said, let's just do it. We'd been talking about moving somewhere and getting out of Wisconsin. We couldn't stand the winters anymore and the seasonal depression. Um, I brought her, my wife out here for her birthday. We went to the American Horror Story premiere party, met insane people and came home. And we were just talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And she said, let's just do it. And I said, okay, when? She said, by my next birthday. And so that gave us like 11 months to prep and sell. So I, that was her birthday's in October, January 1st. I put my screen printing and embroidery business on the market. We sold that closed. We wanted to leave by October that closed on September 1st. I sold it to one of my clients, helped him for the next 30 days. And then we left on like October 2nd or something. We sold my duplex that we lived in. We sold our second car. We, we had like a little ski boat that we had bought. Uh, we sold that. We sold all of our furniture. And if it didn't fit in the back of our F-150, we didn't take it. And we literally just started over. I knew I was going to do million dollar collar because I was already well into that process. But she had no idea what she was going to do. She had a corporate job, always been into fitness. I encouraged her to start training people after work in the spring she started, you know, one night a week. By the end of summer, we had the perfect summer, no rain all summer long in Wisconsin. And so by the end of summer, she had clients five nights a week, full classes in this park. So she paid no overhead. A couple nights a week, she had a second class after the first class. So by the end of the summer, she quit her corporate job. We bought a 6,000 square foot building, moved my screen printing business out of the basement of our house, built her out a gym. And then we rented out half the building. And so we had tenants paying for the mortgage over there. We were running our businesses and she had no idea what she was going to do since she quit the, you know, she closed her gym. She had connections with like Beachbody and Matrix and a couple of companies out here. She thought she was going to get into that corporate world. Uh, and that all fell through. We happened to be walking our dogs with the, one of the few people we knew out here. And he's like, oh, I know a stunt guy. Do you want to meet him? And she's like, yeah, sure. So we meet this guy. He's a stunt man in the movies and stuff. We trained with him one night. They t they hit it off. He introduced her, and now she's a full-on SAG stunt woman. She was in Captain Marvel. She's doubled Taylor Swift. She does Fear the Walking Dead and uh, Bless This Mess, and she's crushing it. I mean, she's worked more than most people in 10 years. In three years, she's done more than her. One of her closest friends been in the business seven years, and she's worked more than her. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's incredible. That's a great. That's a great story too. That's yeah, awesome. no, we can get your wife on here. Yeah, she's she's uh she's intense, man. She's one of those. I'm setting a goal, and there's anything going to stop me. So yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. No, that's great. Did you buy any uh, commercial space out there? Or are you running everything out of your your house? Uh, running. We had a one bedroom apartment that we ran everything in. Coming back to the you know why we didn't do dress shirts early on is I can fit. $20,000 worth of inventory and shoebox. And, you know, my mom's got a house. And so she stores, you know, any inventory, she does most of the shipping, I do the international shipping. So it's pretty easy, it gives me something to do. We have a house now. So I've the garage is full of our dress shirts that we have left. And where they're going to go when we get them back in. So for now, we, we try to I try to do everything I can uh, on our own. So saving every dollar we can, especially in these times, just running as efficient as possible. You say these times, can you just talk about what COVID has done? How has it impacted your model? So COVID has definitely slown up our dry cleaner business because a lot of dry cleaners aren't seeing, I mean, their revenue is down 70, 80%. So while we're trying to convince these guys, like, look, 
people are still wearing dress shirts. I mean, look at me, I'm on a Zoom call. You don't care about, you don't know if I'm wearing underwear or anything below my waist. So at least make sure your shirt looks good. You know, we're hoping that these guys will push a little bit more into the dress shirts and get people doing that. So we have a profitable service for them uh, by them upgrading million dollar collar, but these guys are just in survival mode right now. So we really backed off on that. Our dress shirts were selling insane. I think it's because it's such a differentiator. I mean, there hasn't been a differentiator this big in dress shirts since non-iron came out in the 50s. I mean, stretch is kind of cool. I'm not a big fan of those performance stretch shirts. I think they feel really plasticky and they don't breathe very well. So I'm not a big fan of those, even though they're pretty popular. Uh, but there really hasn't been a big you know, shift. And I, I feel like Million Dollar Collar is that shift. I mean, we've got so many customers that have come back and said, dude, this just needs to be in every shirt. I mean, I don't know why these guys aren't doing this. So we have people advocating for us, sending messages to these brands. Hey, get in. You guys got to get this stuff in. So we're, we're pushing on that. So the dry cleaners are backed off. I mean, even that marketing company, I've got, you know, access to them. And they're like, dude, these guys, these cleaners aren't hardly doing anything. They're just trying to survive. I'm a big Grant Cardone fan. Um, and he grows in when economies shrink is the time to grow. So to me, they should be doubling down. Our Facebook ads, we were getting probably three or four times the reach because all the big brands stopped advertising during COVID. And that's, I think, why our shirts got out so far so fast. And we only have three colors. So to sell as well as we did in those months um, with only three colors is pretty impressive, I think. So That's interesting. Now, you said internationally. What are the challenges you faced going to international markets? Do you, was that much of a jump for you? Honestly, I, I just kind of put the ads, I ri would run a little bit of ads, but I just let the website do its thing. So, okay. uh, you know, if someone came internationally, it was a matter of figuring out the shipping. The shipping has been the hardest thing. Um, so our post office talks to about 30 other post offices. So you can get end to end tracking with 30 other countries. And, but outside of that, so I had the shipping, it could take eight weeks to get to some of these countries with no shipping once it left my place. Some people were willing to do that, but I was just sick of losing packages. I'm a big customer service guy and I hate not being able to answer somebody or having to reship an order or something. So right. we've run some ads internationally, but for the most part, it, it comes pretty organically. Now, as far as the patents go, are, when you sell your product internationally, do the patents you have now, does that protect you overseas as well? Or are there other protections that you needed? So that comes back to the timing thing. Within six months of your patent being issued, you need to say, okay, I want to do it in this country or that country or worldwide. I wanted to stay patent pending for as long as possible so we could build up the revenue because it's insanely expensive to take your patent worldwide. I mean, like quarter of a million dollars to cover every single country. And there are ongoing annual fees that you have to pay to keep that patent active in those countries. So not only is it a quarter of a million to get it in every single country, it's tens of thousands a year on top of that just to keep it there. So we picked the main countries where we felt like our customers would be at. You know, fortunately, we're protected. So if any of those brands try to bring it into the U.S. or any of those countries, we're protected. But if it's like some offshoot country that we don't, aren't protected in. Somebody could make it and sell it there. But the, the material that we designed is, there's nothing else out there like it. So, you know, I, I'm not overly worried quite yet. Interesting, okay. And as far as your shirts are concerned, have you considered doing any um, like in-house manufacturing or is that just not, not feasible for you? Um, 
every single day I say I want to do that because I figured out screen printing and never missed a deadline uh, in nine years. And I've been trying to get these shirts, white shirts made for over three months. And it's like a delay after delay after delay. I've done it all in LA so that I could kind of, I wanted to, while we were making the shirts, I wanted to be able to fine tune as we're going and say, and, and be able to go yell at somebody face to face if something was going wrong. So they're insanely expensive to make here, but we fine tune the shirt to a really amazing quality and design. Um, and we're getting ready to move our manufacturing to Turkey. But I, my partner said to me just the other day, he goes, dude, we need to open our own factory. It, it's ridiculous. The excuses and the reasons why I think nobody in the fashion industry hits any deadline ever. It's, it's so frustrating and it's just not the way I operate. So Maybe, but that's a whole other sure. <laughs> crazy thing to try to tackle. What's the name of the boat? You got a million dollar holler or what, what are you, what are you calling her? Um, actually, we were going to, the boat was called Bella and we were going to change it. And it was way too much paperwork and way too much screwing around. And another thing that just worked in our favor, we got listed in the Marina Del Rey visitors website, visit marinadelrey.com. They alphabetically list the boats. So Bella's the first one that comes up. So we're Bella boating. <laughs> Um, so anybody that goes to visit Marina Del Rey and wants to see, uh, you know, about going out on a boat, we're the very first one that pops up. We got an awesome shot. So, um, it just worked out to keep the name Bella, Bella boating. We're on Instagram, uh, go Tylus, billion dollar collar. We have all the Instagrams, uh, all the Facebooks. So Uh, my wife is starting, my wife is starting a fitness app. So you'll be able to work out with my wife pretty soon, uh, online and, really quick, fun, exciting workout. So it's just, we're that weird couple that just is always doing something. And it's, it's awesome. Rob Kessler, entrepreneur extraordinaire. All right. Hey, we're, we're ending on time, but everything that you're doing, the one final question I want to go out with the point of the podcast is that it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. You are the choices that you make through your life. So what is one thing you would give to an aspiring entrepreneur that's sitting here listening to Rob Kessler, who's got the 50 foot yacht married to the the fitness model that's out in LA, got things that are going good, but you don't necessarily see all the hard work that goes in on the backside of that. What piece of advice would you give to that aspiring person? Um, To me, it's just never giving up. I mean, there's been days and a week here and there where I'm just like, dude, what am I doing with my life? And that happens to my wife too. And we have each other to say, you're going to be fine. Just keep going, find the solution, keep working towards it. If you give up, you can't ever be what you want to be. Um, I watched my dad struggle for 11 years before his business got to started growing. I mean, it didn't even start growing until 11 years in uh, million dollar collars, seven years in. And I can just hear all the people say you're an overnight success. And the, the 10 years of me working for like eight cents an hour, uh, trying to build this company, uh, and all the sacrifice that we give. And we, we travel a little bit. Thank God my wife became quickly, uh, successful in the stunt career. And so she's been making some money and we can go and do some things. Um, but we've turned down a lot of trips. We lost a lot of friends when we bought that first commercial building because we did all the work ourselves. Um, uh, we're willing to hustle. We're willing to sacrifice. And it's just a, it's a balance to make sure that you do take the time to go and get out and experience some life um, and just keep stacking opportunities. It, it's going to happen if you stick with it. If, but if you quit, you, you can't, you can't get there. Thank you for coming on. You have a great story and uh, I wish you the best of luck in, in everything you guys are doing. It's, it's great to hear. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Find mentors for sure. Uh, 
within a couple months we met, I got into this men's networking group and it wasn't really networking. It was, it became more of a brotherhood. And the guys that I met in that are some of the closest people that I talk to today. And if not them, they would introduce me to people that were insanely connected and uh, supportive and, but you can't do it on your own. You can, but it'll take longer. And there's somebody that's been where you are before. And so you can certainly fast forward by finding a mentor and being open. And, you know, you watch Shark Tank and you hear all these people that are so close-minded to ideas and think that they have the answer and that the way they're doing it's the way that it should be done. Our company has pivoted three, four times just following what people are saying, hey, this is what I think we need. And if it makes sense, then we can follow that path because we're open to getting our product to where it needs to be. And, and if, if you can be open, you can, you can change the world. Hey, thanks for coming on, Rob. This is an awesome conversation. And like Brian said, we wish you all the best of luck, brother. Thank you guys. Uh, thank you very much. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye for Brian and Stu and for Rob Kessler. Thanks everyone for listening and we will talk to you soon. Bye everybody.